So who are you going to for in the Super Bowl, Shannon? You don't know. Who's New England? Hand raise. Who's Atlanta? Hand raise. Who doesn't give a care? Hand raise. Yeah. yeah this is a sports crowd. You too? Wow. I love the Super Bowl no matter what it is. Yes, I do too. I'll be in the the commercial. Yeah, you're, you'll tune in for halftime, I know. Um, so this is the third week of our series where we're really delving deep into uh, what we've said is two things. The first is we're trying to bring, and I think it's going really well, a sense of clarity around theology, things that we've called doctrine, dogma through the years, but our theological vision, who we believe God is, what we believe life is about. So our theology, our etiology, in terms of doctrine, we've been really pressing in here as a church. Last week was really interesting when we uh, just kind of talked amongst ourselves and had a reveal of where all of us are as a church. I've had some great lunches. We've had some great lunches and coffees this week with some of you just kind of um, really pressing into the clarity that this has brought. The second thing that we said was we're not just pressing in you know, to theology for the sake of theology. This isn't just philosophical navel-gazing. There's a reason um, that we're pressing into this because we believe your view of God, your view of humanity, your view of the universe, your view of these things should and does impact the way you live your life. Um, I, I joke sometimes tongue-in-cheek because I do believe belief is very central and important, but I often say Jesus... In Matthew 25 doesn't say well believed or well read he says well done and ultimately um, we we believe that your beliefs impact what you do and so the second phase of all of this is to move beyond theology and philosophy and say okay practically what does that mean and we uh, we, we really want to press in and next week I think we'll explore this more but we want to press into what it means in terms of when we leave this building and, and we serve our families and our community. What does our theological vision, how does it impact what we do outside of these walls and in reshaping the social landscape of the world around us and in mitigating suffering and elevating joy? But it's also critically important um, to recognize that our theological vision, the way we see God, the way we view ourselves, impacts what we do inside this room. Religious people, spiritual people, have always been a gathering people. And when we gather, our gatherings are matters of import for us. Uh, David, in, in one of the Psalms, and I can't remember which, but I often think of this. David said, O oh Lord, you are magnified in the midst of the congregation. You know, magnifying something does not make it larger, actually. You can't make God larger or smaller. To magnify something allows you to see it more clearly. And I like that. And I, I am a person who believes not just in spirituality, but I, I do believe in religion. Um, I, I think religion is a wonderful construct that is freighted with lots of baggage, but it is a wonderful construct that nurtures spirituality. And people ask all the time, you know, why do I need a, a corporate gathering for my spirituality? Well. I think all of us recognize to some degree our humanity is elevated by community. I mean, we do art in community, we do education in community, we do uh, almost every athletics, we do lots of, you know, almost every facet of our life we do in community. Why wouldn't we do spirituality in community? 
So spiritual people who gather in a religious setting, uh, it, it's very important for us what we do there. And uh, Mel and I were talking a couple of weeks ago that this would be a really, really good day for her to present a message that she did not long ago. Uh, 250 to 300 evangelical, post-evangelical, and mainline leaders gathered together up in Indianapolis. And Anna and Melissa and I were able to go up there. Uh, who else? And Kim. Kim, yeah, Kim Grant was with us. And uh, the gals from Michigan also came yeah. down. Yeah, so it was, it was really good. Melissa was asked to do a breakout session. It was a well-attended breakout session. And to really press into how this theology, uh, this view of God impacts what we do when we gather and she was there I don't know there were 30 or 40 that came it was a large breakout session most of them were 8 10 15 but she had 30 or 40 people that gathered in that room uh, pastors ministers of music asking the question how does all of this impact what we do and the way we do it and it was a fantastic presentation so I think she's tweaked it to some degree but I'm going to back up here and let her present this it was outstanding and you're about to be Blessed. And can I interject if I if I am? Nope. Nope. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I was thinking you the way you come at sermons and the way I come at, at them are so different. Like I write it all out, gather my thoughts, and he does this off the cuff. So it's really hard for me to build into moments where I say, Stan, what do you think? So just jump in. Okay? I'll, I'll jump in. It feels like a weird pressure though right there. Uh, you know I'm what? Gonna I'm not going to do this. You're fine. You're fine. No, no, no. It's not no, you. No, it's no, me. No, no, okay. No, I'm just going to stand so here. <laughs> So we've had, (laughs) he mentioned we've had tons of conversations this week with many of you and we've loved it. And I want to reiterate before I get into why we gather that this at Grace Point, this truly is an experiment. It's not just, it wasn't just an experiment that he started 12 years ago. We're still a part of an experiment and that shouldn't scare us. That is something fresh and new and it is exciting. So because of that, though, we don't have many model communities out there that Grace Point can look to, okay? There's plenty of communities that we find when we're at the open network or when I go to um, the class that I just did with Brian McLaren, where we're realizing lots of ministers and pastors and seminarians and songwriters, they are where we are as far as on our side of the spectrum, but they're doing it in their own communities. And something I want to point out specifically that we thought about this week are many communities and pastors decide, I'm going to be this sort of grouping. And their grouping is typically small. So typically it would be, I'm going to be the seven, uh, 10 to 7.5 group, and we can serve them well. And that's beautiful, and we respect that. What we're trying to do is say, no, we're this group. We have 0 to 10, some off the scale this way, some off the scale this way, and we're trying to honor all of you. And so that's something very uh, particular about who we are here at Grace Point. So I wanted to give you a little bit of context of my own journey, my faith journey, and how it's been affected by this church, and how also it has helped me to lead this church and speak into our journey well um, here. So when I was hired at Grace Point back in 2009, I would have considered myself a Southern Baptist, still a Southern Baptist, but one who held lots of questions and sincerely loved my gay friends. But I'd also already read Brian McLaren's A Generous Orthodoxy, which is an incredible book, sort of a gateway into progressive spirituality. So I'd read that and I was very moved by it. 
Um, so I was beginning to be basically socially liberal, but I was naive to the fact that there were different ways out there, more than just the conservative Christian world in which I grew up and lived and later worked in for 10 years. Um, most of you know that I was a part of a contemporary Christian singing group for those 10 years of the first part. I call it my former life. <laughs> So I can quickly admit now, though, that I lived in many a bubble over the years, right? The conservative Christian uh, church that I grew up in, the conservative Christian music world that I lived in, each different bubbles. So I grew up Southern Baptist megachurch. I went to a charismatic Pentecostal liberal arts uh, university, and that bubble burst and a whole new bubble was formed there. And then I landed here in Tennessee in the Bible Belt, in the very buckle of the Bible Belt. Yes, we all realize this. So I was an artist in this group, um, and in some small circles, you should know, we were sort of known as the Christian pop music darlings, and some people have called us divas. Doesn't matter. Either way, <laughs> we probably were a little of both. Um, but so I went from bubble to bubble. So in 2009, when I chose to resign from the group, um, I was immediately hired here by Stan to be the worship pastor. And once I started working here um, and continued to read other books by McLaren and Rohr, Henry Nowen, Frederick Buechner, I started to listen more to different podcasts um, outside of just what Stan was teaching. But for me, when I was exposed to all these things, I quickly moved across that line into progressive world. I mean, quickly. I was probably a... I don't know, a 14 when I came in here holding lots of questions and then like I ran across the line excited to be here. And I didn't go through a grieving process, which is different than most of you. Um, a lot, my husband and I are very different in this. And I think the way that we go through this process, the way that we find this information and how we can move into it is gonna be different based off of our personalities. Um, for me, it was partly because I had held all these questions for so long, but thought that I had to stay in this framework right here, not knowing that there was a world um, opening up to me. And so when I was, saw that world and I had an expanded view of God and scripture and humanity, everything progressed for me quickly. We talk about that quote a lot by Oliver Wendell Holmes, that the mind once expanded to dimensions of larger ideas can never return to its original size. And that was true for me, and I know that's true for many of you as well. But it was not a slippery slope. We're still using this analogy often, or people use it of us, be careful, you're going on the slippery slope. And I found it really intriguing that Brian McLaren last week when I was with him, used this analogy and said, you know, if you're talking about the slippery slope, then you're assuming that you or the Christian church is on top of a mountain. And then to go down, these, um, down this path is gonna take us down into something very scary. But for many of us, we recognize that we and the Christian church and its effects on this world, we're not sitting comfortably and clearly on top of a mountain. We feel like we're already here at the bottom, not really doing truly good work. And so to expand ourselves, to explore a little bit, we feel like there's no way but up to go. And that is exciting. So I finally felt peaceful. I finally felt free to explore and expand. And so Stan and I then, this is almost eight years ago, we began to have many a discussion about faith and theology, about our methodologies, and specifically because I was not just leading the music, but he quickly also made me in charge of curating our entire services. So I was tasked with researching not just songs, but prayers and sacraments and different liturgies and all the different traditions because we are an interdenominational church. 
And I started to notice something, specifically in the songs. I started to notice as I was researching the hymns and the contemporary Christian worship that there was a lack of theological integrity in the content of these songs. And I realized that the music pastors, the songwriters, the worship leaders, that we should be having the same uh, theological education as the pastors have had, that that's so important. And I found that it's very lacking um, in this position specifically. Because music, if you'll recognize, often when we leave these services, you don't leave necessarily remembering all the words that are spoken to you or over you. You'll remember some of them if you write them down. But you will find yourself singing the songs throughout the week. And that's not because we do such a good job. That's because that's just the power of music. And so I realized then quickly that the music must carry the same theology as the teaching. That's very important. And so in my spiritual journey, as I was beginning to expand and let go again of my need for certainty, I found peace then in the midst of my questions and curiosity and exploration of both God and humanity. And so I then so desperately wanted not just my personal faith to feel cohesive, but the whole of my life and what I did, my work here for us as a church, for these services to feel cohesive and intentional as well. So I set out eight years ago to do this. And because we were, um, again, not in a certain denomination, we were interdenominational. That's very unique about who we are at Grace Point. We had the freedom to do that. We had the freedom to start exploring. And so I started to ask, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And I haven't stopped asking those questions in my journey or for us leading here. So I ask, why do we believe this? Do we believe something just because we've received it? It's an inherited tradition. Can we push into that and actually still ask the questions, is this truth here? Is this good? Is this faithful? Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we teach or preach for 45 minutes? And all the mainliners at the conference were like, we don't. We preach for 15. <laughs> What's wrong with y'all? <laughs> so why do we do this, though? Why do we do Eucharist? Why do we do it once a month? Why do we do it every week? Or why would we do it every week? Why do we pray? Why do we worship? All these questions, and the list continued for me. And I realized that the sacred cows, the untouchables, like, no, 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 don't ask that question. Those became fewer and fewer and fewer. In fact, I realized that nothing should be off the table as far as asking why, why, why. Because I realized that if it's true, truth can always be defended. We have nothing to be afraid of in asking these questions. So it was probably seven years ago when I was leading one of our services and I was singing a very familiar song to many of us that sang, I'm so unworthy and yet still you love me. I'm so unworthy, and yet still you love me. And somewhere deep in my head and my heart, I sensed, wait, wait, am I unworthy? Why do I believe that? Who told me that? Is that something from God? Is this from the church? Why? And all of a sudden, these words that seemed so familiar and so right for so long, it began to stop in my heart. And I realized that this feeling of unworthiness that was um, you or me or others in my life, they had spoken over us, that they had sung this over us, that they had prayed this over us so much that the whole of our, be uh, our, our whole being felt like, no, we are truly unworthy. But I couldn't believe that this was truth. All of a sudden, this didn't resonate with my heart. And I started to notice then this phrase and this idea um, everywhere in our liturgies. 
It was everywhere in our prayers. It was everywhere in our songs. And so the question began to be, so are we unworthy and wretched or are we beloved? Are we worthy of dignity and of love? Because there's two different questions there, very important. And what a difference that that shift of making, not from a person who is truly unworthy, but from a person, each and every one of us as being the beloved. When you make that shift, it changes your whole worldview. It changes your view of God and of you and of others. And that's an important shift that we need to make again. Because I believe the things that we say, that we teach, that we sing, they are perpetuating these ideas of what we believe. And then they are, uh, we as leaders, they're things that we're trying to invite you to believe about God and about yourself and about God's relationship with humanity. So obviously now, hopefully you realize that we at Grace Point believe that we all bear the image of God. And because of that, we have this innate worth that nothing will ever take that away. Okay? Yes? Yes, we're all there? Yes. So I began to ask, why would we sing or pray these things so consistently? A shift needs to be made. Now, understand, we do need to sing about humility, (laughs) We do need to pray for humility. We do need to understand that, yes, we do make mistakes, that we are not perfect beings, that sometimes we fall. But I think that's a very different sentiment than saying that at our core we are unworthy and wretched. So then I began to find other phrases and other half-truths or false truths that stuck out to me and caused me to turn my head within our liturgies and our songs For instance, many of us grew up in situations where we would pray or we would sing often over and over and over, come Holy Spirit, fall on me, fall in this place. And I began to say, wait, 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 wait. So either God is this external being. Yes, God is external from us. He is or she is separated from us and creation. And then we, because we are sinners, we must petition and ask and convince God to come near to us. If you believe that part of the story, then that prayer makes sense. Or if you believe that God is with us always. And no matter where you are in our spectrum, many of us believe that very thing. Once you cross into 10 to 0 land, you're saying, no, God is with us always. Even for those of us that have a more deistic or a more panentheistic view, we believe that God is here infused in this universe. Or for others of you who are more bibliocentric, you believe that verse, God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when you get there, why would we continue to pray or ask or try to convince God to come somewhere, right? There's a shift. There's a difference. And so here we are not saying, please fill this place. Here we are now saying, make us aware. Make us aware of your presence. Make us aware of who you are. And what a difference, again, that shift and that mindset will make in not only your worldview, but in your spiritual life as well. We needed to be consistent, friends, and that's what we're continuing to try to do here. So I'm always asking myself, does this resonate with my heart? Is this idea founded in truth somewhere? Does this concept preserve life or wholeness or some idea that can hold people, including myself, captive to a higher standard and to a higher truth? And so when I started curating those services eight years ago, they looked a lot different than they do today. And I'm proud of us making this journey together. And so in thinking about our progressive worship, progressive Christian worship, and specifically in thinking about why we gather week after week, why we come and do this service together, I have tons of thoughts. So I want us to think about these forms or these liturgies that we use and why. 
why do we use music and how will we use music? How and why will we use communion? This is an important one. Why do we open up this floor sometimes and baptize? What does that mean? How and why do we dedicate our children? How and why do we pray? What is the intentionality of the message or the sermon? Now in the progressive context, we also have some freedom to try to explore and do some new things. And one of those would be the dialogue that we do often here at Grace Point. That's something that's a nuanced difference between us and a lot of congregations that you may have come out of. But part of this progressive lens and the intentionality with dialogue is reminding you of your own voice and your own dignity, reminding us that we are all the beloved and worthy and deserving to be heard worthy and deserving to ask our questions. And so because of that, we make room for dialogue in this hour in 20-minute service. Okay, so not just our preaching, because in the old context, it would be that whoever's on this platform, right, that Stan and I and a few others maybe, we have a direct access to God. And so therefore, we can bring you this information and then just spoon feed you. Okay, no, that's a shift that we're making. That's a huge shift. That's why we hand you the mic often in these services. Another thing that we do different because of our progressive Christian lens is this idea of not Q&A, but Q&R, okay? There's intentionality with that. Q&A would say, you have a question and we have all the answers. Q&R says, you have a question and we want to respond to you um, about our own convictions, but to do so with humility and not because of this idea that we are certain in what we believe. Okay, that's an important shift that we've made. But the overarching question continues, what is the intentionality of this time? And is it for worship? Is it for worship? And if you would say yes quickly, I'm going to ask you, what do you mean by that word worship? And I want to go back and look at the original concept of the word, quickly looking at the original Greek definition of the word from our scripture. So the word worship is translated in Greek proskuneo. And by definition, it means to kiss the ground when prostrating oneself before a superior. Worship means to fall down, to prostrate oneself, to adore on one's knees. In the, most, in the opinion of most scholars, it meant to kiss. Uh, an example was Egyptian worshipers are represented often as, uh, with outstressed hand, throwing a kiss to the deity. So Proskuneo su- suggests then this willingness to make all necessary, and I think that word is important, all necessary physical gestures of obeisance. So the second idea would be in doing something for God that demonstrates sacrifice because God requires it. All of those definitions make perfect sense in the context from which they came, in the context of where these people lived. So when you look at Strong's exhaustive concordance, worship means meaning to kiss, listen to the second part, like a dog licking his master's hand. So when you think about God, okay, Think about it for a moment, God walking into a house and extending God's hand to a dog and waiting for the submission of that dog to be shown by licking God's hand. Okay, think another analogy. Do you think about God in a kingly fashion? And so God is then coming into the main streets of town and we're all lining up as a community and God is expecting every one of us to bow low because God's presence is finally there. Because that's the definition of what this original word meant and the intention behind it. It was reverence. It was to show honor in such a way that God is so high that we must go low. 
that God is so worthy, which also meant in turn that we were unworthy. See, people often feared God. If you look back at Egyptian culture and the Jewish culture, and then when Christians came out of this, um, often you can look in scripture though, every time um, someone fell down in front of Jesus and the example that we have of Jesus, they fell down in fear. They fell down prostrate before him. And every time Jesus lifts them back up and says, you have nothing to be afraid of. It's a shift. It's a shift. And so we use this time then in thinking about our worship. I believe our hour or so together on Sunday is a time for celebration. It's a time for challenge. It's a time for contemplation and a time for reflection. It is also a time of hopefully transformation and growth. This time is set up to aid us in our ability to open up to the mystery of who God is and the universe and also to honor the beauty and complexity of our humanity. I always love to share my resources. Um, I don't have any quotes for you today, but if you're interested in reading more about this, um, Brian uh, Siracho has written a great book on progressive worship, and I can tell you specifically um, about it afterwards. But he lists some things, and these are things that we already use and will continue to use within our services. We use gender-inclusive language, both in our analogies and metaphors for God. That's why I said he, she earlier. I caught myself. But we will also use gender-inclusive language when we're talking about the community. We won't all only use masculine language for God or for humanity, which is what is wholly present in most of our songs, in most of our hymns. If you look back and pull out a hymnal, it is he, 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 he talking about God, and it is man, 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 man talking about all of us. And all of a sudden, 50% of us are left out of that equation, right? So we will not perpetuate that. We will tweak things. We will rewrite with public domain if we can, or we won't sing those songs anymore. <laughs> Many of you are saying, where's that one song? And I was like, oh, have you looked at the lyrics lately? <laughs> so there's a needed shift. Another needed shift is a balance. Um, often many of us grew up in this I, you, God focus. It was always me and God. It was always individualized. But somehow we've forgotten about this whole communal aspect. And so what we've tried to do here and will continue to do is get away, again, also from this us versus them mentality. Often in churches and in these songs, we're singing about us. Our God is greater. Our God is higher. And that means the rest of the world is bad. No, no, no. If we're going to talk about us versus them, we're going to talk about us for them. Us for them. And then I would love to get us away from us, them mentality and talk about we're together in this. And I'm not talking about just us together in this room. I mean, we're together with this whole world standing up for goodness and beauty and truth. Yes, we make that shift. Yes. And so because of that, another shift, there will be continued to be stated a passion for social justice. There will continue to be stated this need for recognizing and pushing into shalom and a desire to speak for or on behalf of the oppressed. There will also be a focus on the fullness of the human experience. There will hopefully be emotional authenticity. That means that we're going to have moments of intensity and passion that will lead us to tears. And then we also want to have moments of quiet repetition and stillness that will teach us and grow us. We will continue to be open to fresh images, to fresh ideas, and to fresh language. No more boxes. We're saying no more boxes. We'll continue to form our view and a use for prayer. 
Now, prayer for a lot of us as progressive Christians, for many of us in this room, it is no longer taking the idea of a supernatural uh, natural external being, hoping that if we use the right gestures, if we bow down, or if we say the right language, then God will step in and manipulate the situation for us. Neither is prayer anymore this Santa Claus style prayer where we say if we are good, if we do certain things, then we will get what we ask for. Personally, this has run out for me. I'm speaking from my heart now. I shared this online this summer, um, but I was faced with this head on when my kids were really scared one night. Hutch and Haven are 10 and 7, and Hutch had been having trouble sleeping and had had a bunch of nightmares. And so he asked me that night before going to bed, can I pray for them? And so I had to think, okay, yes, what does this mean for me right now? And so I went and I held their hands and I explained to them that prayer, what I'm trying to do is for us to understand what is already true. And so I said, just close your eyes. I do to them what I do to you all the time. Close your eyes, focus your heart and your mind. And Haven's like, what does focus mean? (laughs) Like pay attention with your eyes closed. Um, So I said, let's focus on what is true. This is what we believe. We believe that God is infused in us, that God is in this world, and thus God is always here with us. I told them, I believe that God is in all things good and true and beautiful. And then I went on to say, um, as we're going to sleep, let us be peaceful then. Let us know that our bodies need and it deserve rest. And so they have these sleep sounds playing every night. And so I said, do you hear that water? It's coming from your phone. I said, do you hear it? I said, listen to that. Think about a river. Think about a river. And we'd just gone on a camping trip a couple months earlier. I said, so think about that river. I said, think about any frustrating thought or any scary thing that's in your head. Think about those as leaves on that river. And they're just going to wash away. Let them just float away with the water. And then I said, also let that river then bring you a a refreshing night's sleep so that tomorrow you're your deepest and purest you again when you wake up. So we said amen, and I said that means that we are just agreeing with everything we just said. And so now, since this summer, we basically do a different iteration of that prayer every night. And if I'm being honest, sometimes it's get in bed, hear the river, let it wash away your sass, be a better girl tomorrow. Haven specifically needs some help sometimes. <laughs> she is a mini-me. I mean, oh, we can talk about it later. Okay. So in our prayer, when we're doing this corporately in our services then, what we're doing is trying to have these affirmations of who we are as beloved. We're also affirming our responsibility to be co-creators with God. We're also saying this need to be able to bless each other. Sometimes we're choosing to name our doubts, We're choosing to name the tensions that exist in this world. And at times, like last week, we are calling out the evil systems that are in this world and in turn feeling our responsibility to do something about it. That is what prayer is. So all we've done is start to let go of that petitionary form of prayer. But we have leaned into silence. We've leaned into contemplation and we've leaned into connection, not just with God, but with each other. Where personally I have moved and progressed is also that God, for me, again, this is for me, is not that supernatural being outside of the world. And in doing so, I've recognized that for all of us, when we say the word God, we are, it's just a metaphor. 
We're doing our best to wrap our heads and our hearts um, around this idea that there is sacredness in this life. But often I think for many of us, we use this anthropocentric language when we talk about God. And that's because often we've thought that humanity is the most significant entity in the world and thus God must be like humans. So we use a lot of human language when we're talking about God, God's feelings, God's emotions, God's hand, God's head. We use this and sometimes I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that's the best we can do and we should honor that though. But I think the point is to recognize that we are simply pointing <laughs> And that we need to keep pointing. We need to keep pointing to what is good and true and beautiful, but stop pretending like we've captured anything. Stop pretending like we have this fully figured out. We need to recognize those bubbles and those boxes and say we will not do that anymore. We will be open. We will be trusting, not just of God, but of each other. So as a progressive seeker, I understand and experience God as infused in this entire world and its processes. Um, a universal sort of creative process that is continually happening at work in the world and in all of us. So a new metaphor that I found really helpful uh, in talking about the sacred is this phrase, serendipitous creativity. It's said by the theologian Gordon Kaufman, and he uses this phrase, and he says, the notion of creativity is explored in connection with the profoundly serendipitous mystery that is implied in it. I love that. I love that. So I've come then to think about our position as worship. It is not about the direct praise of a God because I don't think God demands or desires that. I think worship is about the celebration of life, of God in this life, of the whole of life. So it's the recognition of our ups and our downs and it is the gratitude or the response that should follow, the healthy response. Think about that quote by St. Arrhenius that says, the glory of God is a human fully alive. The glory of God as a human fully alive. Or you can look at scripture in the letter to the Ephesians. The writer says, I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The fullness of God. That is something to be celebrated. So I think worship is a human activity and it is celebrated in the presence of the sacred rather than praise required of us by the sacred. Difference. Worship is a human activity celebrated in the presence of the sacred versus required praise um, of the sacred to us, from us. So the goal then of our times together is to help us know and feel and understand ourselves as individuals and how we relate to this world and to the universe and to creation and thus to God. See the connection? So we will celebrate that relationship and we will reaffirm what it means to be fully alive, living with the fullness of God in this world. Theologian Rex Hunt offers a really helpful tool that says each of our services should be times of gathering, of centering, of exploring, of affirming, of celebrating, and then of scattering. And I love that. I think that's what we're trying to do here. So for anyone worrying, maybe one of our conversations this week said, well, what, what's it going to look like next? I'm like, no, it's going to look like what it's always looked like. Specifically in the last year or so, we've been doing all of these things. All we're doing in this series is clarifying and articulating the why behind what we do. 
So our services, they already, they will include both biblical and non-biblical contemporary readings that are consistent with the spirit of Jesus or the way of Jesus as best we understand it. We will use modern affirmations or celebrations of faith rather than using traditional creeds. We won't do that here. We'll use modern affirmations and celebrations of faith. We will use Holy Communion, and we will do so by celebrating community. We will do communion by understanding and becoming aware of the brokenness that is represented in our world by bringing to light. Sometimes Stan did this in the fall. Um, we brought someone like uh, Michael Higgins, who was in the midst of a horrible sickness and hard situation, and we brought him up and we said, this is the broken body. May we be aware of it. May we lift it up. May we go touch it and honor it and stand with it. Okay, that's one example of what communion means when we break that bread and drink that juice. Another opportunity in the fall, we put up that picture of the boy uh, from Aleppo, the one that we're all so familiar with who's in the back of that ambulance. And we were reminded in the midst of taking the bread and the juice saying, this is the broken body. May we be aware and may we respond to it. That is what communion will mean for us continuing. We'll use baptism as an opportunity to celebrate our belonging both as the awareness of you recognizing your belovedness and also as a symbol of your connection to this beloved community. We will also have times and we needed a rediscovery of what it means to lament. So often we're looking for these opportunities within our services and a great example of that is what we did last June in our Requiem for Orlando. We stepped in and said today, today's a day to pay attention. Today is a day to confess. Today is a day to become aware and have lament and grief that needs to be honored in this moment. We will have times of centering silence. We will have a spiritual vitality, hopefully, that is earthed in the here and now. We will use at times that anthropomorphic God language, talking and recognizing, though, that that is a metaphor. And at times we also won't. So don't be put off by that. We're going to try to do both. We will be a, uh, a community continually um, choosing to be a community with intellectual integrity. That is so important for who we are here at Grace Point, and that's modeled by Stan, and we will continue to do that. And we will sing together. We will sing loudly and passionately, and we will also sing quietly and contemplative, uh, contemplatively, but we will also sing with theological and emotional integrity. I won't have any less than that. I can't help it anymore. So one more anecdote. I read a blog that was questioning and critiquing the use of secular music in our churches. And the writer had an opinion of which we all have our rights. He is the beloved. Um, he, <laughs> he felt, though, and he articulated that he had captured the rights and the correct way in which we must conduct a church worship service. And his view was that we should never use secular music for then people leave singing the secular song um, and sing it in their heads instead of thinking about Jesus. And I had so many thoughts. Okay. So again, after being a part of the Christian music industry for 10 years, I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I can tell you about how I believe that we have marketed that word Christian in a way that would sell our products per profit and not necessarily for the hope of sharing a true good news. I could also tell you that I believe there is no clear dividing line between sacred and secular and how I've approached, um, began to approach all of life as sacred. I could also discuss my opinion that Christ, the word made flesh, this incarnational reality is alive today in all things good and true and beautiful, which naturally then includes art that is not labeled Christian, right? 
So I could tell you my many frustrations with people that seem to be so sure and certain and end up missing the humanity or the context right in front of them. Instead, they're choosing to be prideful and closed off. See, I have so many thoughts. I try to keep them. Okay, so but for now, I'd like to tell you my opinion, which most of you would know. But I curate, which is, means I, I use that word a lot. I love the term curator. It means that I pull all of these things together with an incredible team of volunteers that you see often behind you and around you and on the stage. We pull together um, the services week to week from the lightings, the prayers, the screens, um, the scheduling of appropriate volunteers. We produce a service in hope that we will have an experience together. But I don't decide, we don't decide when we do this that we are trying to manipulate what the outcome will be when you leave. Okay, that's not our job. We're trying to offer an experience for you. So specifically when I choose songs for Sunday morning, I do a lot of time I'm listening and searching for songs that feel honest. I search for songs that would make us want to be honest with ourselves and thus with God. And it's one of our chief spiritual virtues. We talk about it all the time. Honesty is a chief spiritual virtue. And so we're going to have musical moments in the service when we sing together. We're going to have moments and times where we sing over you. And those end up being songs from any genre, from pop music to country music, which I'm not a fan, but some of you are. So I do it. <laughs> we'll do Southern gospel songs. Somebody said amen. We do black gospel songs. We do indie. We even do some Broadway here, which many of you love. But they are, uh, they're songs from any genre, any decade. But the filter that we use is does it resonate does it encourage? Does it challenge? Does it convey a sentiment that we are trying to get across and focus on as a community? Because if it does, then we're going to use it. So we use everything from Bob Dylan, right, Gotta Serve Somebody, to Joni Mitchell, um, to Rent, Season of Love, all the way to Christina Aguilera and a great big world song, Say Something. We've used all of that. Now, I don't choose these songs in order for us to look cool or hip or relevant. I don't care. I choose songs because I don't, I also, wait, I also don't want us to sing songs where you or I are pretending like God is our girlfriend or our boyfriend. Come on. We can't do that, right? We're done with that. We want to go deeper. So we sing them because this is real life, though. We sing them because we are honoring um, songs that will reveal the humanity of all of us, even humanity that is at times broken, but it's humanity nonetheless. But this is who we are, beautifully human. And so when one asks, why would you sing a song, say something like this man did in the blog, what does it have to do with worship? My response is everything. It has everything to do with worship. If you are, that song talks about being in the middle of an ending in your life, a relationship specifically. And so if you are going through that, any one of you in this community, I hope we're going to sing songs that reassure you of how to make healthy decisions as you end that. I want to sing songs that will assure you as you face the death of something that if in fact this is the best way to go, that you'll be reminded that there is new life that will come out of this. I want us to be reminded that there is a new day, there is a fresh start, there is a hope for tomorrow, and that tomorrow always brings new opportunity, that it's the very idea, the paschal cycle of life, death, and resurrection that I believe, again, it's built into the processes of our world. And so our worship, our healthy response is that we can face this life with God, face it honestly and without fear, that we can face this life with hope. That is my call. That is my encouragement to us. This is the heartbeat of the community that I think we've built all together. 
So part of clarifying this spectrum these last couple of weeks is not only for you to know where you are and where the leadership is, it's also for you to understand that there is a broad group of people here with different beliefs, nuanced beliefs, and they are sitting here right beside you. And we don't believe that we need to have uniformity in order to have unity. You hear me? That's a big difference in what we're doing in a part of this experiment. We don't need to all look the same and believe the same in order to have unity here. But we will choose. We will choose to sing and we will choose to pray and we will choose to teach. We will not choose to do it in a way that we feel as leadership or with the leadership council um, in a way that we feel is damaging to you or to this world, okay? There is a stopping point. That's because we're convicted by this. But instead, we will choose to sometimes sing mainstream songs or we will sing hymns. We will have Eucharist. We will have Ash Wednesday services. We will do mirror work sometimes. We will light candles. We will take offerings up and we will pray together, which seems like church to me, yes? That is church, but again, we're gonna question why are we doing it? What is the intentionality behind it? And my response and encouragement is that I have seen new things rise up out of dead things in this church and in my own life. And I encourage you today, even for you to ask yourself, maybe not just about what we do here, but in your own life, do a vitality test. Ask yourself, is this thing giving me life? Is this thing bringing me life or is this thing suppressing me and pushing my spirit and my soul and my heart and my emotions down? Because if we can let go of those things, if we can let those things die, we will watch expectantly as something new and fresh and exciting can unfold. Santa said it before, but if we have new wine, we need new wineskins. That's what we're talking about. So can we engage with each other and with God in awe and wonder and with gratitude? If so, that is our worship. That is the intentionality behind this time in which we gather together. And each week, I think this should center us. This should ground us. This should lift some of us up. This should embolden us. This should remind us who we are and what we are called to become on behalf of the world. And to me, that is exciting. Amen? Amen. Amen. Told you, told you it was good. Thank you. Told you it was good. It made me think that secular sacred uh, thing at the little church in Jonesboro, Arkansas that I used to be youth pastor at and went to for years and years. Uh, we had a bus ministry. Remember bus ministries? And one of the little girls that came on the bus one night at youth service, we offered to let all of the kids sing a, a song. And they all got up and sang the song they knew. This little girl was not raised in church, family wasn't church, but we picked her up on a bus just down the road and brought her in. I think she may have been nine or ten years old, but she said she knew a Christian song, and she got up and she proceeded to sing. J.W., she sang that old country standard, God took a hundred pound of clay, made a little bitty woman to give a whole lot of loving to a man. <laughs> sang the whole thing through. That was her Christian song. <laughs> There is no divide. That was um, that was that was outs that was outstanding. And the so what I would like for us to do next week, we're going to get out of here now. What I would love for us to do next week is just take the last three weeks. We've put out a lot of information. This is a lot to process. And let's take next week 
And, and I think we may have a few things to say. I would love for next week to be all just Q&R. Yeah. I would love for us to talk. Come with not just your questions, not just questions and response. Um, you have good things to say. And um, so let's do that. Let's uh, try to get everybody here and let's wrap this series up with a really good time of just open discussion. Does that sound good, you guys? Yeah. Come with your questions. Come with your hearts open, your minds open. All right, anything else before we go into Because of the Super Bowl, there were no restaurants open enough for us today. So we're going to head over to the food court. If you want, join us at Cool Springs Mall. Just continue the fellowship. And if not, have fun at your Super Bowl parties tonight. Whoever's playing, enjoy the <laughs> halftime show. <laughs> but we love you guys. God bless, God bless you. you.